Hello, and welcome to the Data-Driven Marketing Leader podcast, brought to you by Notch. I'm your host, Andrew Bolton, Chief Customer Officer at Notch, and along with Anda Ganska, CEO of Notch, we'll be diving deep into the world of data-driven marketing and exploring how marketers can contribute to business growth at every stage of the customer journey. In each episode, we'll be joined by industry experts, thought leaders, and marketing innovators to discuss insights, strategies, and best practices. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button to stay up to date with the latest episodes. To learn more about Notch, you can visit notch.com. That's K-N-O-T-C-H.com. Now, let's get started with today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Data-Driven CMO Podcast. I'm excited to have Khaled today with me. He is someone who's seen our company grow over the last few years. I met him at one of the first events that we threw in New York, and he saw the launch of a product that we have since decided to kill. So you've seen quite a bit of the company since then. And you've also had a really tremendous evolution since then. And you're now CMO. And so I'd love to just hear a little bit of your story without me kind of uh, breaking it for everyone. Would love to just hear where you got started, what made you want to become a marketer to begin with, and how you've ended up becoming a CMO. Sure. Yeah. First off, thanks for having me. It's been a while. We've known each other a while, that is. And so my journey really starts when I graduated college. I graduated in 2007, just before the Great Recession in 2008. And I always say to folks, especially younger folks who don't realize this, you used to sort of pick a city and then just made the assumption that you would fall into the right career. And so I graduated. I assumed that everyone had sort of rose-colored glasses on at the time, that I would have no problem finding a job. And I wanted to live in New York, so I moved to New York. And I wanted to move to New York because I wanted to be a writer, actually, not a marketer. And so I went sort of writer, like nonfiction, fiction, journalist. I moved to New York and started applying for an MFA program. So I wanted to write nonfiction. Thought that I would be in the city for just about a year before going on to a graduate program write books, teach, you know, a 22-year-old sort of living the dream. So my first job in New York was actually at Bloomingdale's working retail and then taking on sort of copywriting jobs and, and writing gigs that I found on Craigslist or through friends on the side. And, you know, like many people who moved to New York City with a plan that was derailed and I fell in love with the city. I decided that I wanted to stay. And so I ended up getting a job as an EA, as an assistant at a nonprofit called Teach for America. And that sort of coincided with the recession that happened in 2008. And Teach for America became very much a media darling. Suddenly, high-achieving college graduates couldn't get jobs at investment banks, at consulting firms. Lehman Brothers collapsed, where many of them were employed. And Teach for America became the number one employer for recent graduates. And so I was there through a period of really rapid growth, worked a couple of years as an EA, and then took a position there working in comms where I realized I could get paid to sort of flex and build my writing skills and continue to write on the side. And so I was 25, 26 years old, writing and placing op-eds in the Wall Street Journal, doing 60 Minutes, the Today Show, these really high-profile media opportunities that most people don't do until they're 10, 15 years into their career, all because of the position that uh, Teach for America was in at the time. Wow. And so I, was, I ended up being there for about three and a half, four years, and I sort of was in a position where I could keep progressing through my career at the company, or I could make a really radical change. And what I recognized was that if I stayed any longer, I would most likely be pigeonholed not only into the public sector, 
but into the sort of world of education or that sector more broadly. And I did what a lot of people do. I thought maybe I need to go to grad school. So I started studying for the GMAT. I applied for MBA programs a few years after applying for MBA programs or MFA programs and taking the GRE. And instead, someone convinced me, and it was ultimately the right decision, to not get an MBA, but to move over to the agency side. Because mm-hmm. working in an agency would give me exposure to lots of different types of work, but also lots of different types of clients, industries, mm-hmm. and sectors. And so in the same way that Teach for America was right place, right time, starting at this agency called SJR was very much right place, right time as well. I think I was employee number 25 or 30. By the time I left, we had surpassed 200 employees and we were acquired by WPP. And so not only was it an agency that was going through a period of really radical growth, they were on the front lines of what at the time was this radical concept called content marketing, whereby companies like GE were leveraging outlets and platforms like Tumblr to showcase the work that they were doing in the eco space around locomotives and turbines through really beautiful photography and social media, which now sounds crazy to say, but was just for the first time being leveraged for B2B marketing. People were starting to realize that Twitter and Facebook could do more than just connect you with friends and could really promote products and position companies as more accessible than they had been previously. And so small agency, but great clients worked with GE, Pfizer, Goldman, TED, the Motion Picture Association, and did that for about three years. And then as I'm sure you know, through many friends and colleagues and probably many people listening, agency life is not super sustainable. Long hours, lots of travel, and a sort of frenetic pace that comes with working with really disparate, not only clients, but types of people. And so I decided to move in-house. And because I had been representing TED and going to the TED conference for many years, I met this company called GLG, which is a professional learning platform that connects client companies to experts in many, many different fields. And I ended up running marketing for them for about three and a half years. Interesting job, learned a lot. And then five years ago, my five-year anniversary is in four weeks, I joined Stack Overflow. And the sort of thread that's run through everything, which I'm sure we'll spend some time talking about, is this notion of community marketing and community at the center of all the companies that I've worked for and two-sided marketplaces. So Teach for America, we had our constituents, and then we had the hundreds of thousands of students and families that we served. While I was at SJR, one of my big clients, Ted, had, of course, the high net worth, high profile attendees who attend the conference, but also the billions of people consume the talks and their blog posts. When I was at GLG, we had our bench of a million experts and then the thousands of client companies that we served. And now at Stack Overflow, we have one of the most popular websites in the world visited about 100 million times every single month. And then 15,000 organizations who use our private SaaS knowledge management and collaboration platform. So that is the sort of through line through all that I've done. And then finally, and I've been talking way too much and it will be more conversational moving forward, I promise. I never really gave up on my dream to be a writer. And so the beauty of being in New York is that there are really interesting, well-connected people everywhere. And about 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago at this point, I just went up to someone at a party who was an editor at Paper that I really respected and said, hey, like, I love you on Twitter. I've been following your career for a long time. Could I write for you sometime? He connected me to someone. Same thing happened at Huffington Post. Back when Huffington Post was a, a lot different than it is today. And in the 10, 12 years since, I've contributed to Vice, to GQ, to Food52, to Paper, to lots and lots of magazines and platforms. And I think in addition to really fulfilling something that I'm passionate about, it's made me a better, stronger marketer because I think so much of marketing 
even in this AI enabled world and through all of the data that we sift through on a daily basis, marketing is about communication and being a strong communicator is so key. I have so many questions. I'm going to first ask you, where were you born and raised? It's a great question. I should have started there, but then I would have talked even longer. But <laughs> I was born and raised in Iowa, which people, you know, sort of always say, I've never met anyone from Iowa before. Or they say, I've been to Iowa. And it turns out it's because they worked on a presidential campaign because Iowa <laughs> So I've never been to Iowa, nor have I met anyone from Iowa before. I guess you a few years ago, but that's it. Yeah. So I'm born and raised in Iowa. My dad's Palestinian. So my dad moved to America when he was about 30. So uh, first generation American. Awesome. Second question. What topics do you write about in all these publications? I have no hard and fast rules in terms of what I cover. I'm in the sort of fortunate position where like, I'm certainly not contributing to these magazines to earn a living. And so I only write about things that I want to write about. My one rule is I don't write about anything that touches my work. So I'm not writing about trends in AI or the developer experience or workflow. I often cover food. I cover art, travel. If there's a really interesting celebrity activist or actor that I want to profile, I'll pitch that. So it's more on the sort of culture side. That's really cool. Do you do food reviews or is another aspect of food interesting? It's mostly sort of personal essays through the lens of food. So I've written a couple of very popular essays on, for example, bringing hummus to Iowa. So hard to imagine now, but 20, 25 years ago, no one in America really knew what hummus was. My dad has many, many siblings and we would go to Chicago to visit them and we would pick up like in our suburban, a case full of tahini and pass it out to all of our neighbors so they could make their own hummus because it was impossible in an Iowa grocery store to find tahini, which now is certainly not the case. That's amazing. I love that. Next question. How do you think there are people who work in the agency world for their entire career? I mean, how are there people who do lots of things? You know, I think about, I think about that all of the time. Like doctors, for example, like that's that type of pressure. So Yeah, I mean, everyone is different. I think that the agency world is changing and I'm not as close to it now as I once was, but there, you know, has historically, and I think to some extent still is, a very clear career progression. Mm -hmm. And the more senior you become in an agency, there becomes more of a sales component. You're expected Mm -hmm. to bring in new business, unless, of course, you stay an account manager or a creative or what have you. And to some people, that's like really interesting and compelling. You get to flex creative muscles and effectively sell and you're really relationship-oriented. To me, that was never super compelling. I'm extroverted, but not extroverted enough to navigate a 30-year career in advertising. Yeah, I've been amazed at people who I know who've worked their entire career in agency and the stamina that they have. And to also build a life outside of that is intense. It's very intense. It's a lot of fun, and there's a lot of new challenges that are coming at you all the time. So I get that part, but yeah, it's intense. Next question. Stack Overflow is a pretty complex business. And before we get into kind of all the different bits and pieces of how you do the marketing, I'm just curious how you managed to wrap your own mind around kind of the business of Stack Overflow and how you managed to kind of simplify the complexity of that when it comes to the marketing message. Yeah, it's a great question. And similar to how you started out when you talked about a product that you sunset, we've been through quite the product evolution. 15-year-old company, started obviously as a website or a Q&A platform for developers to democratize knowledge for developers on the internet. And then over the course of those 15 years, launched advertising products. Eventually, we still have advertising products today, but eventually launching this SaaS product that is now the primary revenue driver for our business. And so 
I think I'll answer the question in two ways. First, how did I get smarter on the product? So I don't really code. I don't know how to code, but I've managed developers throughout my career. And so I'd always heard from them when something broke on our website, they would say, let me check Stack Overflow and then I'll figure it out or I'll get back to you. And I had heard anecdotes about when Stack Overflow was down, how catastrophic it could be for a day in the life of a developer. And so I knew it was an important platform, but how I really got up to speed, and I'm sure you've heard this from lots of CMOs, is when I first started, not only did I interview virtually everyone at the company about what made it special, what the challenges were, and also the opportunities, I talked to a ton of customers and then actually went on the road. I'm sure we'll spend some time talking about this, but conference sponsorships were a really key component of developer marketing at the time. And so I, gosh, I, I went to Copenhagen, I went to Vegas, I went to London, I went to big technical conferences and I staffed the booths that we were sponsoring and just talk to developers, prospects, and customers day in and day out. And that sort of immersion was so critical to me understanding not only what the company did and what made it special, but what brand confusion existed. Oh. And so what I heard from folks was that they didn't really know how we made money. We needed to clarify and crystallize the message. And that's something that we really invested in in the five years that I've worked there. We really positioned it as a two-sided marketplace this massive public platform for all of the world's developers and technologists, and then a private version of it for companies with an advertising component as well. So how many constituents do you have that you're marketing to? It's a great question. I mean, there are lots of ways to sort of slice and dice it. At the end of the day, we care about all the world's developers and technologists. The number of professional developers, depending on the data source that you use, is like between 25 and 50 million. So that's mm -hmm. old who we care about. But when it comes to our ICP, where we're really investing marketing dollars is economic buyers. And that continues mm -hmm. to evolve with the economic landscape, as I'm sure you hear from everyone. For a period of time, directors of engineering often had budgets. They were able to make decisions around how they allocated those dollars. Over the past couple of months, in the last few months in particular, not only has our ICP sort of moved up the food chain to VPs of engineering, CIOs, CTOs, but now buying committees also comprise COOs, CFOs, et cetera. And then do you guys still have an advertising business? We do. We still have an advertising business and it's great profit margins, really, really healthy because at the end of the day, for a while, we talked about the cloud wars that happened between Azure, AWS, and Google Cloud. Now we're talking about AI all of those massive technology companies, but also small ones. This also happened during the three craze of just a year ago, which feels like a decade ago. All of those folks need to reach developers and technologists to evangelize their products, to sell out their technical conferences or what have you. And Stack Overflow is one of the very few places where you can reach those technologists at scale. You know, technologists are not, they're on Reddit, certainly. So Reddit is a platform they also leverage but they're not consuming the New York Times or uh, the Wall Street Journal in the same way that you or I are. They have ad blockers on in a pretty sophisticated mm -hmm. way. And so our ad business remains really profitable and popular. Do you invest any marketing resources and kind of advertising to advertisers? We do. Here's the thing about advertising to advertisers. It's not rocket science. The buying cycle is pretty clear. The sales cycle is fairly short and marketers oh. are fairly receptive to marketing. Well, especially if you have a really differentiated message, like if you're one of the only platforms where a certain audience can be reached, you're right. It's not rocket science. Exactly. So our CAC is much lower. And the other thing is like a lot of these massive tech companies work through media buying agencies. So yeah. we can reach the agencies. We have good relationships with people at these companies. 
And so I'm not saying it's easy because nothing is easy, but as someone who gets, I don't know, like 12 LinkedIn messages a day, it's definitely hard to pierce through the noise, but selling a SaaS product to a technical persona is much more difficult and much more expensive because- Tell me about it. (laughs) Technologists don't use LinkedIn in the same way. They're not super receptive to advertising. Again, they have ad blockers on at a much higher rate. The buying cycle is incredibly complex. Budgets are not carved out in the same way as a media buy and take like 30 touch points. And the sales cycle can be up to nine months for a product with very high per seat cost. So how do you do it? Like what's kind of the secret sauce? How did you break through? Every quarter is different. I think a couple of things, and we can break this down in lots of different ways, top down and bottoms up. It's not either or. So, you know, you have to influence the influencers. And so we do a lot of developer marketing continue to sort of build a bridge between our public platform and our paid product. And we even have sophisticated marketing messages, as I'm sure you do, to ICs, to individual contributors to say, hey, if you like our product and if what we are selling solves a critical problem for you, here's how you position it to your boss. Here's how you articulate it in terms of ROI. Here's what it could displace relative to what you have today, et cetera, et cetera. Every developer knows Stack Overflow. So, you know, they can be a powerful resource for getting us into a company. That said, our true ICP, our buyers, don't use Stack Overflow. They're not writing lines of code in the same way that I know what our marketing tech stack looks like. I don't know how to use very much of it. I know how to read a dashboard, but I certainly can't yeah. my yeah. own. And so that's true of our technical buyers. They're not using stackoverflow.com. They are not facing some of the problems that the developers on their teams are. And so we have to get very crisp on ROI. We have have a lot of validation from both analysts and from customers. And what's working in that regard, especially over the last six to 12 months, is healthy investment in field. So we've really taken down our conference sponsorship spend. And we've invested in like intimate dinners where our CTO or our CEO will meet with, say, six prospects and six customers to discuss their business challenges and preview some of what's on our product roadmap. We're doing golfing outings. We're doing one of my favorite field formats is we're buying at a movie theater, screening a popular film like we did Avatar 2, which I still haven't seen. And then before the movie starts, in lieu of for too long, speaking of having to go to the bathroom, and in lieu of previews, we'll show like a three-minute video from our CEO or from one of the salespeople in the region welcoming everyone to the premiere, but also talking a little bit about our product. And what's Mm -hmm. great about those movie events, you know, I think what's not great is it doesn't really foster healthy dialogue or conversation. But what is great is people will invite a family member, like their kid or their spouse, and then they'll feel more compelled to attend. Because I'm sure you and I are in the same boat. Like, how many dinners do we get invited to? Or at the it's like, oh, I just That's can't. pretty brilliant, actually. I was thinking about the fact that obviously events have become more important since kind of COVID has hopefully died down, knock on wood. But you're right. I mean, the attendance rate when I talk to B2B marketers is like 30 to 50 percent. People just drop out at last minute. So I love the idea of inviting a family member to an event. It's super compelling. That's something that is working. And then I think the other thing worth calling out here is like our budgets are being scrutinized by boards, by our finance team, by the CEO depending on how your company is structured, the cost per an event like this, like a movie event or a dinner, is probably like two to $5,000. Relative mm-hmm. conference spend, where inclusive of T&E, you're looking at like fifty to $75,000. If we do do a movie event or a golf outing at the driving range, 
and attendance is low, like it rains and people don't show up or whatever, I'm able to say like, look, this wasn't great, but at the end of the day, it was $1,500. Like there's nothing worse sure, yeah. during a conference, realizing that the conference misrepresented who was attending and having no booth traffic and sinking $35,000. Or co-organizing events at conferences. I think the reality is that when people go to conferences, even if they attend an event, I don't know if they're necessarily in the mindset to really kind of receive a message about a new offering because they're just being bombarded at a conference. So I like this approach of sort of creatively finding moments that are kind of out of context to really drop that message, kind of make it stand out. Two things, actually, in response to that. Our conference strategy has really evolved. There are a couple of big ones that we continue to sponsor that are high value for us. But what we now do is we really just send executives to speak at the big conferences. Mm. We found is like if you have a speaker pass or a VIP pass, you're able to reach the people that you want to reach in the speaker lounge. So we did oh, this yeah. summit in yeah. last year. Me and my CEO both spoke and we met a ton of customers and prospects in this sort of green room, which is massive at the Web Summit conference where 40,000 people attend. And we didn't need to have a booth presence in order to accomplish generating a bunch of pipeline and it costs us very little money. The other thing that I'll say that's great about field is you can be very surgical from a regional perspective, especially in this sort of recessionary environment where T&E yeah. budgets are constrained. So how many companies are now saying, hey, no more conference travel? Like we're not sending 50 people to Vegas anymore. So instead, we can say, okay, we're going to do an event in San Francisco. We're going to do an event in Austin. We're going to do an event in Omaha, in Toronto. And we can use field to really augment where we're having challenges when it comes to organic pipeline generation, paid or search pipeline generation or what have you. So do you think we're ready to say that booth marketing is dead? No, because it's such a critical component of like, here's what I'll say. I think booth marketing will never be what it was seven years ago or even right before the pandemic. Like, I think that two things. One, there are going to continue to be the conferences that everyone has to have a presence at, like an AWS reInvent, for example, where companies pour in. They've effectively turned it into a business, right? Like everyone right. had a presence at some of these conferences. The other thing that I'll say is it really depends on your ICP. Like I think that HR folks, for example, are always going to love a conference. They're pretty extroverted. They like to see and learn from each other. And it's, for whatever reason, like part of their DNA to go to these conferences. Same with marketers like a conference better than a technologist. Are developer conferences going to continue to sort of be what they once were? I don't know. I think there's a key persona person who learned through the pandemic, like maybe it's not great to, you know, uh -huh. have to go travel and like not productive. And I'm just being bombarded by vendors and not actually learning anything. So I think companies really need to take a step back and say, like, is our customer, is our buyer the type of person who is still going to conferences. So one more question on conferences that will tie us into community marketing, which is what about having your own conference and investing in really having one big event versus going to so many other conferences? Yeah, we actually did our first customer conference last year and oh. it was really productive. I think another CMO said to me, like the benefit of doing a customer conference is to sort of like give your customers and prospects a warm hug maybe a weird way of framing it, but that turned out to be true. So it was great to be able to get people in the same room and to sort of marry the prospects and the customers to have them at the same table to say, hey, like we're having the same problems. Stack Overflow is solving this for us and maybe they could solve it for you. And then of course, the social activities that followed. We had this like really incredible dinner 
the night of the customer conference that was super well attended and was a huge accelerator for our pipeline. The caveat here is that it's super expensive and it's a ton of work. And so much of it is out of your control, especially in 2023. Like two of our speakers pulled out at the last minute because they had COVID. Our show rate was not where we wanted it to be. We had to get really creative about how we invited people. And so is it worth it? Yes, but you can't just, we hired an external agency to help us. It took up virtually all of my time, including weekends. And so you have to be like very realistic about what it entails. Interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so let's get a little bit more technical and talk about content and data and growth and sort of the intersection between the three because another thread throughout your career seems to be content and the fact that you sort of came into this world by being a writer. And I'm assuming given you are selling a relatively high consideration product, that content is a big part of your strategy. So tell me a little bit about how you guys think about the role of content, the role of data, the role of growth, and the intersection between the three. Yeah, it's a good question and a very high level question. So I think a couple of things. When I started the marketing team five years ago, seven people, today it's between 30 and 35. And one of the areas where we've really invested is on the content front. And so when I started, we were publishing to the Stack Overflow blog once a week, seeing about 30,000 page views a month. And it was one person, one relatively junior person. Now it's three people with a bench of freelancers and permalancers. We're publishing daily to the blog. We've also launched a newsletter and we've launched a podcast. The newsletter reaches about 1.2 million people every week. The blog, 400,000 page views a month now. And the podcast was downloaded something like 600,000 times last year. And so the content channels, the sort of spokes from the hub that is a public platform have been so popular that we've been able to monetize them to the tune of about $2 million per year, which is exciting. Wow. And we've been able to do some really like thoughtful and considerate developer marketing through them. I'm really proud of that and the team and all they've accomplished there. And I'm grateful that our company has seen the value of investing in creating that content. You know, it's not cheap and it's not easy to do. So that's one thing. I think the other thing is that how sort of data comes into play is we've taken a pretty thoughtful approach to how we evolve our content strategy. A theme of our conversation is that like not every persona is the same and people will acknowledge that, but they actually won't act on it. And so like when I started, I was so used to traditional marketing, if you will, not technical marketing. And so I thought, you know, okay, let's do some listicles for the blog, Pivy content, Q&As. And what turned out to be true of developers is like they like really meaty, deeply mm-hmm. technical, long content. So some mm-hmm. of our most popular blog posts are like three to 5,000 words published in two to three parts that outline how we solved a deeply technical problem or how we built something that we released. And so meaning into that has been critical to establishing the credibility of our platforms. So that's one. And then the other, I think, is that from a content and data perspective, like it's been increasingly important in this economic environment that we really lean into the ROI message. And so we've built a number of calculators and business value tools so that, you know, we, of course, invested in case studies and the equivalent. But what we really want to signal to people is like, here are some example data of what it would look like if you were to integrate our tool into your company. I think we've really invested in things like analyst relations on that regard as well. Love that. I love the fact that you actually are making money from 
your content initiatives. That's pretty cool. I don't think I've heard that before. You know, one of the things that's been hard for us, but also for a lot of B2B marketers that I'm talking to in the last few months is that the ICP is changing. It's evolving. It's including more people. It's a committee. Maybe before it was one person, now it's a committee. And maybe some of the people on the committee don't really have awareness of your brand. And so it feels like as B2B marketers, we're having to kind of rush from awareness to favorability to purchase in a very short period of time against a series of new personas. And then I'm assuming that also like the categories of companies that you're going after or the industries are changing because, you know, some industries are doing better than others at the moment. So how do you guys stay agile? Do you get dizzy on a daily basis from all the pivoting that you have to do? Yeah, I think a couple of things. So one, we sort of on a quarterly basis, we run an analysis of our ICP at a high level. To your point, are the sectors or industries that we're targeting changing? A very straightforward example of this is like during the Web3 crypto boom, all of our new advertising clients were in that space. Yeah. And yeah. there was crash and yeah. like and were stopping. They were no longer reaching out via inbound. And now like a lot of that is happening with AI. And that sort of follows the funding cycle. So that's an example of like why it's important to your point in this environment to sort of rerun that exercise on a quarterly basis. The other thing I'll say is that it's sort of a fool's errand to invest heavily in awareness campaigns for people outside of your traditional persona. Even though CFOs are now part of our buying cycle, we were not taking up million dollar ad buys in the Wall Street Journal or CFO.com to educate them on our tool because that's a ton of work and a massive investment. And so I think a couple of things that are important. One, validation. What customer stories and logos can we secure to sort of signal to a CFO in our space? Okay, they support this major bank or this Fortune 100 company. It must be a tool that's legitimate. And then two... How can we leverage field or events similar to that, the most like white glove marketing to make up for gaps? So mm. there are worlds in which we can do a dinner just for customers and prospects in the financial services sector where CTOs and CFOs are invited together, for example. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. It's really good advice. Thank you for that. So let's talk about AI for a second. AI is coming for all of our jobs and maybe it's coming for all of our lives. Maybe we reach the end of humanity. Maybe it's coming for developers too. And so I'm actually curious, first, what are you hearing from the developer community and how excited or unexcited they are about the fact that now AI can write code? And second, how you're thinking about the disruption that AI will bring to marketing, if at all? Yeah, well, look, I think AI will be disruptive to everything. Disruptive is a charged word. There's like TechCrunch disrupt and that's positive and then disruption that's negative. AI is certainly going to change all of our lives in the same way the internet did and mobile phones. And like the thing that's so interesting, I'm going to butcher this stat. I shouldn't even say it, but I'm going to. I don't even know where I read it, but I recently read that something like 60% or 80% of the jobs that existed in 1960 no longer exist. We've sort of evolved accordingly. And I think that that will be true of this. This is a seismic shift for sure. But I think that it's just a natural evolution of how technology evolves and how humanity progresses. I don't believe the sort of catastrophic takes that like everyone's going to be out of work. And I'm hopeful that we will adapt and that, sure, some jobs will become obsolete and we'll have to figure out how to evolve the economy accordingly. But hopefully it augments a lot of the work that we do as opposed to putting us out of work. 
And I think that that cautious optimism is what we hear from our developer community through surveys and other things. So I think that right now, and you see it with this sort of constant launch of developer tools, code completion tools, what have you, developers are excited that it's making them more productive, more efficient, and they're not overly concerned that it's going to put them out of work. I think that it'll make the good developers better, and it will probably take away jobs from some of the bad developers or people who shouldn't be coding in the first place. But jurors allowed on what it looks like. We're really just like six months. I mean, people have been building with AI for a while, but this sort of zeitgeist has only been on this journey for about six months or so. So I think that there's a lot of potential. And I think at Stack Overflow, we're investing heavily in this space and we're excited about what it means for us. With regard to marketing, what I said remains the same. There was a study that came out recently, and I think there are some parallels here, where one of the positions that people have said AI is going to kill is customer service because chatbots, whether intercom or call centers, will become much more efficient. And as LLMs are trained, they'll be able to handle any customer complaint. I think the reality is, like, we all want to talk to a person. It's like how many times you just keep pushing one until you get an operator on the phone to bypass the robot. And there are some studies that have come out that have said, actually, people do want to talk to a person. And AI tooling and LLMs have made those customer service people much more efficient and much happier in their jobs. And I think that parallel will apply to marketing. So like the worst parts about marketing, I mean, it depends on who you are and what you like and don't like, but like I hate writing or I always hated when I was agency side writing like 10 variations of the same tweet or six variations of the headline for a blog post for SEO purposes. And AI can very easily take some of that out of the system. And then I think the other thing is like data is unreliable. Attribution is very messy. As you know, like how can AI augment and solve some of those really meaty problems? I think that that's where it's going for marketing for the short and medium term. Long term, I don't know what marketing will look like. I love the optimism and the excitement that you have for this. I think the idea of technologies role has always been to make our lives easier. And this is just an acceleration towards that. And it's scary to some, but ultimately it's just fulfilling the mission that it always had. I also think marketers have a real responsibility to ensure there are guardrails in place and we're not like over-indexing on some of the hype Mm -hmm. here. In Q1 of this year, how many companies, and I'm sure folks in your space and people who were pitching to you just like threw AI onto the end of their company name, and purported to have this like revolutionary technology that really was like nothing. It was just what they had been doing for a while in a new wrapper. And so I think we have to be careful and thoughtful. Okay, final question. As you look at the future, what are the things that scare you the most and what are the things that make you most excited? You can answer it as a marketer, as a person, as whatever you want. So I think the thing that scares me the most is that Over the past 20 years of my career, we've been through like a lot of cycles, like the recession in 2008, for example, or even the dot-com boom in 2000, 2001. It's like we went through a cycle where we went up and then we went down and then we went up and then we went down. And over the past three years in particular, the pace change has been so frenetic and unpredictable that it's really exhausting. And my concern is like, how sustainable is this? And so in 2020, obviously, the pandemic coincided with this work from home revolution, this distributed work environment. We went from a recessionary environment to a boom. Anyone who raised money can say that. And then we're now in this bus period, the stock market and companies sort of strategies with regards to spending and profitability is somewhat married to the debt ceiling controversy that who knows how it'll end up. 
sort of concurrently, we're talking about our conferences back, are they not back? Are we in a pandemic? Is the pandemic over? I think that the whiplash that this creates across every single industry and every single team is really, really tough. We were in a high growth environment where we were just trying to bring in as much revenue in the door. And then suddenly the nozzle was turned in the other direction. And now we're obsessively focused on CAC. Our whole strategy has to change. And who knows what it'll look like in six months. And it's not sustainable, especially from a marketing perspective, because as you know, these things take time. And so that's my concern is I worry, especially with the acceleration of AI, the political landscape, like it's not going to get better. We're going to have to continue to be super agile, which is what I say is like the most critical components being a marketer right now. But like, I don't know if it's even possible to be as agile as is required to navigate the challenge that lie ahead. Well, I also think there's just a natural element to you can't just be in wartime for years and years and years, right? Like we're going to burn out. I think a lot of people are burning out and COVID already kind of got us to that place. But how much more agile and how much longer? And before we get a, I don't know, a break, it's not looking like that. It's looking like more of the same. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the thing that's interesting that we haven't talked a lot about it, and like, it's not my area of expertise, but like there's a lot of research and a lot of marketers think about how to reach Gen Z. And mm-hmm. I think there are some interesting trends that we're seeing with regard to Gen Z. Like a lot of them are unplugging from social media. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are pursuing like more consultative gigs or, you know, mm-hmm. like the gig economy as opposed to full-time work. They're prioritizing work-life balance. It is possible that things will change and change for the better. And I think that Gen Z offers a lot of optimism around that. That's awesome. Yeah, hopefully. I think mental health in general is going to become a massive priority for all of us and probably one of the next big industries to create more unicorn companies. Because out of all of this crazy change, I think we're going to emerge feeling like we need to focus on ourselves a little bit more. So we'll see. For sure. Cool. Well, that's a great message to end on. Thank you so much for an awesome conversation. Really appreciate it.